You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, guys. How are we? Y'all awake today on this gray morning? Getting there? All right, keep working on it. Uh, man, I can't believe this is our last week of People of the Pages. I am uh, I'm sad that it's over, uh, but I'm also really excited about what we're starting next week. It's going to be a fun one. Uh, if you uh, are a first-time guest today, I want to say another welcome to you. Really glad to have you. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to open up your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, but before we get there, uh, some backstory is necessary while you're turning. Uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, I'm sure you've heard of Moses. Uh, he was the leader uh, tasked with bringing God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, which was a literal and a figurative journey where they were to go from slaves to sons and daughters. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which were a form of house rules for God's family. And here we see that God's people have always had a form of attention deficit disorder. Because by the time Moses gets back down the mountain, the people have already forgotten about Moses, about Yahweh that rescued them from Egypt, and they've made for themselves a golden calf. Moses understandably goes postal, and he breaks the tablets. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's thrown something when I got mad, amen? A bit later, God invites Moses back up the mountain, and Moses pleads for mercy for the people, and God grants it and gives new tablets for the commandments. Moses stays on the mountain with God for 40 days. And he's so engrossed in God's presence that Deuteronomy 34 says he did not eat bread or drink water. God's presence kept him alive. When Moses got back down the mountain with the tablets, something strange happened. His brother Aaron and the people are terrified of him. And he doesn't know why. He didn't know this, but what he realizes is that his face was literally shining with the glory of the Lord. I don't know exactly how it played out, but in my mind, it was a funny moment because how would you react if you don't see your brother for a month and he walks in and his face is iridescent? That would surely freak me out. And eventually they calmed down and he told them everything he heard from God. And we aren't specifically told how long his face shone for, but he decides to put a veil on his face when he's meeting with the people and he takes it off to go meet with the Lord. So that's what you need to know for our passage today. That's the background. And, and this story has always fascinated me because, pardon my cheesy word choice here, but it's a glaring example of a theology of attention a theology of attention, that our attention is necessary for faith in God, for worship of God, for obedience to God. We have the people down, on the mount, down below the mountain who are struggling to pay attention to God, and they get into all sorts of foolishness. But Moses is up on the mountain so attentive to God that he comes down, not even knowing that his entire persona has changed. He's shining not just figuratively, but literally. Now, to pay attention is literally to attend to something or someone, to be fully present, not just your eyeballs, but your full heart, body, and soul. 
And this story is one clear example of how essential our attention and presence are for transformation to happen. And if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, man, that must have been really cool to have your face glow like Moses. I'll tell you something wild, though. As we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to say we have something even more glorious available to us. So let's go verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, the law that came to show us our, our spiritual hopelessness and death because we actually can't keep God's law on our own, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So the glory on Moses' face was only a temporary glory. And that temporary glory represented the temporary glory of the law. It was a good, blessed thing, but it was incomplete. Verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So let me try to translate that for us. You think Moses' face was cool? Let's talk about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who did not just speak from a mountain, but came down from heaven and put on flesh himself, lived a spotless and radiant human life, who trusted in the Father at every turn, resisted temptation at every turn, so he could offer us his righteousness. But in order to do so, he'd have to die for our sins, raise to new life, and fully seal the new covenant of grace that is far more glorious than the old covenant because it actually saves. In other words, Jesus is the true and better Moses. And he sent his spirit to indwell believers in him so that we all could have what happened to Moses happen inside of us, but not in a temporary way, in a permanent, lasting way. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. According to Paul, Moses didn't want the people to see that the glory eventually faded away. Let's get down to verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul says, now we are all to be a form of Moses. We are to behold the glory of the Lord shown through Christ, and our souls are to glow with His Spirit as we are made new and ever more transformed into the image of Jesus, who was the most radiant person to ever walk the earth. And this builds on the theme behind the sermons we've preached in this series. We started talking about by talking about a people who find life in Jesus and Jesus alone, that He'd be our source of satisfaction and vitality. We talked about being a people who live lives with a faith in a real God who really moves and works all around us. We talked about being a community who help each other see and step into what God has for us and how even in the midst of our imperfect lives, this God is there. It's the day he has made and he meets us there. And they've all pushed us in the direction that we'd be people whose lives are rooted in our God, present with him, such that what Paul is saying here would be true of us. 
We'd be transformed from one glory to another, brighter and brighter and brighter. But here's the thing for our time and place as we look forward to our mission in the next 15 years. If you look around you, especially in a darker environment, I can just about guarantee you that faces will be glowing. It just may be more of a blue uplight than the radiant glory of the Lord. I feel the need to address the youths for a second, okay? This will be a sharp dividing line in age, maybe around the age of 30 or so. I don't know. But uh, would you guys do me a favor? And would you raise your hand if you remember when the internet made noise? That's enough of us to say, yes, yes, it did. Young people are like, what in the world are you talking about? The internet does not make noise. And those of us who know, we know, right? That yes, it did at one point in time. It went something like this. Beep, boop, beep, beep, boop. That's the sound it made. The internet used to be limited by time. So you'd get this CD in the mail that said 50 hours of free internet. And then you'd go beg your parents to let you use it. And y'all, this is crazy, but phones used to have tails. These long, curly tails that attach to a wall like that one. And get this, if someone picked up the phone with a tail, it would kick you off of the internet. And you'd have to log back on to AOL Instant Messenger and hope your friends saw your clever away message while you were gone. It was a whole thing. But the point is, the internet used to be this thing that you actually had to step into. But about 16 years after the iPhone came out, the internet is more something that has stepped into us. By the time we started weekly gatherings in our family of churches in 2007, less than 17% of people worldwide had access to the internet, a little less than 50% of Americans. Today, it's a bit more than that, a bit more. It has gone from noisy CD to truly feeling like a human appendage in a very quick amount of time. According to Time Magazine, studies done in 2021 showed Americans spend more than four hours a day on our smartphones. Studies are still catching up, but we know that excessive screen time has very negative effects on kids and adolescents. It's been linked to psychological problems like the depression, anxiety, and poor sleep. There are now digital detox centers, documentaries about the corporations who are addicting us to our devices like rats because the duration of our eyeballs is what makes them money. And I mean, I've never done this, he said sarcastically, but have you ever spent too much time on a screen and just felt that drained, weary, lethargic feeling after? It's the opposite of a face glowing with the glory of the Lord. Have you ever let your kid have a bit too much screen time because you needed a break and seen that, that anti-glow on their faces? The potential drain from overuse isn't the only negative, though. There's increasing research about the way our attention spans are shrinking over the last 20 years. 
In a recent podcast by the American Psychological Association, Gloria Mark, who is a professor at UC Irvine, shared about this. She said that we first started to track attention spans on screens back in 2004. And at the time, the best method we had to do so was actually a stopwatch. Can you imagine that? So they would have a person pull up a Word document to work on something and track how long they could work on it before switching to something else. The average in 2004 was two minutes and 30 seconds. By 2012, that was down to about 75 seconds on average. We don't have fully updated data, but the best numbers from the past five or six years have the average down to 47 seconds. The median was 40 seconds, so half of all respondents had attention spans of less than 40 seconds. That's a lot of change in a relatively short amount of time. And she went on to talk about how all this change in our habits of attention actually produces more physical stress in us because every time we switch our attention, we must incur something called a switch cost. So let's say you're writing a paper and you stop to do something else. When you go back to the paper, you have to remember where you left off, what you're thinking about, what you wanted to say next, all of that. So the idea is that all of this switching we do rapidly increases our body's physical stress responses because we're always gearing up for the next stimulus. And I imagine that a lot of us feel that to some degree, and I realize we all have to find ways to operate in the modern world we live in. Like I said in the first week, I have an iPhone and I don't have plans to get rid of it, but, but I do think about what it must have been like to have been Moses sitting on that mountain for his attention to have been so fixed on the Lord for so long. I imagine we all have some sort of experience with doing something you enjoy so much that you lose track of time. Your attention is just so engrossed in the thing you're doing. And I think about the effect this had on Moses, about him walking down that mountain with his face glowing. And then I think about how Paul says that we have been given access through God's Spirit to a far greater glory that doesn't fade. There is no Moses nostalgia in our passage today. There's no glorifying the past Paul says, no, forget that. That was fading. We have something better. He gives us a bold call to live as people who are attentive to God and therefore transformed into greater degrees of glory. What we see is that scripture calls God's people to be people of presence. People who turn our full, undivided attention to God and are transformed through it who then turn and give our full attention to those around us that we've been called to love and encourage and bless and be on mission with. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we, have, we who have been reconciled to God now have been given the ministry of reconciliation that God makes his appeal through our presence to others. Attention is deeply theological and entirely necessary in our worship and in our mission. And on the flip side, cultivating habits of attention deficit and distraction is very detrimental to spiritual health and mission, even if it's culturally normative. So as we look to our mission to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him over the next 15 years, we're gonna have to really carefully consider what it means for us to be people of presence here 
and now. People who attend to God to be transformed and out of that fully attend to others around us. And I think this is an uphill battle that we must fight together. So I have a few things to center our attention on today. Number one is intentionally unhurry your life. Intentionally unhurry your life. So have you ever been around or been talking to someone in person, having a conversation, and then your phone buzzes or dings in your pocket, a message or call is coming in, and suddenly you're no longer there in the conversation? Like you're still looking at the other person, but your mind is now wondering who's calling. Is it something important? Is it my mom? Is it a telemarketer? The other person still is still talking, but the words they're saying just become sort of white noise. Surely it's not just me, but what, what is normalized in our time and place is, is frantic busyness and constant distractibility. If you do what everyone else around you is doing, that's how your life will feel and be structured. And I have a theory that isn't just my theory because there's increasing data verifying it as lots of people are catching on. And the theory is that it is bad for a human person to be available and accessible at all times. It increases anxiety and it minimizes peace. And if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, then you know he demonstrated a consistent pattern of going off alone, especially before and after draining events. He had these moments that seemed to almost mimic Moses going to the mountain. Real quick, uh, follow me through these verses. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, Jesus went to, out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. Matthew 14, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So hear this. There were times in Jesus's life when he was unreachable. Jesus was unreachable, unavailable, inaccessible. And it was not unkind that in these moments, Jesus was unavailable. It was not unloving for Jesus to be unreachable. It was not irresponsible for him to be inaccessible. In his humanity, Jesus sensed and knew that he needed to be off limits at times. And I believe it's worth noting that Jesus was quite literally the most important person who's ever walked the planet. And if he needed it, then you and I need it too. If we are going to be people marked by our presence with God and others, we are going to have to find ways to structure our lives that are different than everyone else around us. To set some boundaries with the pace of modern life, to build in some intentional rhythms of just being with God and others. As we see from the life of Jesus, there is no shortcut to this. There is no way around it. We have to look at the patterns of our lives and then objectively ask the question, should a person living life like this expect spiritual flourishing? Should a person living at the pace that I am living expect spiritual flourishing? Should a person with the boundaries with tech that I have expect spiritual flourishing? And if the answer is no, then changes must be made. I think bare minimum this will mean 
We have to set boundaries with our technology that may be countercultural to those around us because for Jesus, he could just walk off and go somewhere quiet and he was away from distraction. But for us, the problem is that there's basically nowhere you can go to become inaccessible to others unless you make intentional conscious decisions about your technology and specifically your phone. There's no way for you to give your entire presence to God or anyone else if your phone has unbridled access to your attention. So I don't know what boundaries need to be for you exactly, and my suspicion is that they may need to be different for each of us, but here's some options I'd offer up for consideration and and questions to ask. On a daily and weekly basis, how will you get uninterruptible time with God? When you sit down for a meal with others, what role will your phone play in the meal? When you're with a friend and having a longer conversation, what decision will you make about your phone? Will you be distractible, interruptible? At life group meeting time, at Sunday gatherings, date night with your spouse or significant other, quality time with your kids, what role will your phone play? Here's what it boils down to. When are the times in your life where you will prioritize undivided presence? over distractible accessibility? When will you prioritize undivided presence? And again, I don't know what the boundaries need to be for you exactly. What I do know is that if you have none, if you let yourself always be accessible and distractible, you are setting yourself up for spiritual and relational breakdown. This is something I need to grow in as my wife could surely tell you. And if you're looking for a good starting place, I think being away from your phone at least an hour a day is probably a good jump start. One of the guys in my life group was talking about this just this week, about how he's been putting his phone on a dresser in the late afternoon or evening and not picking it up again until his kids are in bed at 8 p.m. And he said it's just like magic, the difference that he notices in himself. He's much more mentally clear, so much calmer, so much more present with his family. And maybe this is somewhat on many of our radars, maybe one of those things where we go, man, yeah, I really need to do something about that. I need to get better at that. But then often we don't. So I just want to remind us that I don't think this is just a practical life management issue. I think it's a spiritual issue as well. Here's how John Mark Calmer put it. He said, what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. Your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That puts it in a bit of a different light. So look at your phone usage records, the things you spend the most time on. Look at what you give your attention to, and then think about it in reverse. Are those things what you want to be the sum of your life? The way we've said this before is you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Moses and Paul would certainly agree. And we have to heavily consider what we are beholding and what effect it may be having on us. All right, that's number one. Number two is embrace our analog fates in a digital world. Obviously, technology has been implemented in positive ways. We use screens and projectors. We live stream our services for the sick and the homebound. 
Honestly, if GroupMe didn't exist, I don't know how our live groups would function. We use it so much. Tech has been a powerful tool for the spread of the gospel and Christian resources. But, but our faith is an analog faith. Ours is an enfleshed religion. When we come into the faith, we wash our bodies with water. We take communion each time we gather in taking the elements into the core of us. Our actual physical presence is necessary in the family of God. Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together as the people of God because God's design for the church requires our togetherness, our physical proximity and presence. So there was this thing years ago I heard about called Second Life. And it was this online platform where you basically created a digital life. You get online like a video game and, and you just create a digital life with hobbies, you know, persona for yourself, the whole works. And I saw where this church was trying to, to meet people there by creating a, a Second Life church. And I'm sure God used that and other attempts like it, but I'll just tell you personally, when I saw that, I wanted the majority of our time and energy focused on the exact opposite. Like I want us to create an analog church that is so beautiful and countercultural that people want to turn off their computers and see what's up with some people who almost seem like they're glowing. That's what I want for us. One of our members recently sent me an article from The Atlantic about why church attendance is such a rapid decline in America and in the West. There are many reasons for it, but this one article explored uh, one reason was that many churches have adopted this mindset of, of trying to meet people where they are and ask less and less of people. So you're busy? Don't worry. Catch our worship, worship experience in the car. And that and so many other areas, churches try to lower the bar and fit church into whatever tiny spaces might be left in people's lives. And the author of this article said, what if that's actually a major reason for the decline? Because people see the bar lower and lower and lower and then conclude, I guess this is not really worth my time and energy. The author asked, what if it's the churches who raise the bar, who look at the pages and ask more of people based on what we see there, who actually might retain people and grow into the future because that stands out in a digital marginless world. And the member who sent that to me in the email said, you guys have been preaching this for years. And I was so proud because I was like, man, you guys really do listen to us. It's amazing. Sometimes in my life group sermon discussion time, I wonder, but you guys really listen to us. Just kidding, guys. Suffice it to say that our vision of being people of the pages will mean that we will continue to raise the bar for all of us. We are not and will never be in the business of preference management. We want to be a faithful, beautiful people of the pages. And while we're here real quick, can I just give you two really quick ideas for how we might lean into this? One is that we really lean into practicing the Sabbath and we do earthy analog things there. We put our screens down even more on that day. We have deeper conversations and unrushed time with one another. And then secondly, this one might surprise some of you. I think we could more start bringing our physical Bibles to gatherings and to life group. 
I know, I know you have every Bible that's ever existed in your pocket, and that's amazing, okay? It's amazing. That's one of the miracles of technology after so many have died to get the scriptures into the hands of every tribe on earth. But my opinion is that we lose something by only digitally interacting with God's word. So I think it'd be awesome if a year from now, we have a higher volume of physical pages flipping in our gatherings and in our life group gatherings. A subtle reminder to all of us that we will always have an analog faith in this rapidly changing world. And then lastly, number three, make eye contact like Jesus. In multiple gospel accounts, Jesus said that the eyes are the lamp of the body, that they reveal who we are on the inside. They glow with delight and they dim with weariness. And Jesus, who is the greater Moses, full of glory that doesn't fade, he certainly withdrew to be inaccessible at times. But when he encountered people, the pages paint the picture that his presence with them was unmistakable. Like in Mark 5, where a woman with a debilitating 12-year-long medical condition reaches out in faith and touches Jesus. She gets her healing right away, but, but then what does Jesus do in response? He, he stops everything to look to her, makes eye contact with her, calls her daughter, and he takes a, a moment of physical healing and turns it into a life-changing spiritual moment because he was distractible. And in the spur of a moment, he turned the full weight of his attention to this woman who was very much in need of it. And we have the opportunity to do the same. This makes me think of uh, my friend Steve, who sadly passed away several years ago. The office that I work out of is was actually his office because uh, he retired from his role uh, as a VP of Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, to serve as a volunteer staff member in our family of churches. And his goal for his retirement was to make sure that all of our pastors retire spiritually healthy. He's an incredible man. And he was obviously very successful to the extent that someone in the corporate world once told us that 10 minutes of his time was worth thousands of dollars. But he had this incredible intensity about him, and he had plenty to do. But when he was with you, he was with you. The full force of his energy and attention was on you. It was like an enjoyable laser beam, if that makes sense. Trying to help in whatever way you might need it. And at his funeral, one of our pastors shared a moment like that where Steve was immensely thoughtful and engaged with him. And he just asked the crowd if anyone else had had a similar experience. And hundreds of people raised their hands. Almost everyone in the room. It was incredible. And in a world full of frantic, busy, self-involved people, we have the opportunity to be people who aren't in a rush. People who are distractible. People who linger, who ask questions that show a real interest in someone's life. A people who make deep eye contact. And I don't mean in a creepy way, okay? Single guys, I'm not giving you a free pass to scare the ladies, okay? It's not what we're doing. But in a world of nonstop digital distraction, part of our call is to be people of loving, warm eye contact who can pay attention. People who stop and notice others. We've often taught over the years that we need to reclaim the lost art of hospitality. And did you know that this is actually a biblical command for us? 
This is Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I know it might be a little bit early for studying Greek, but there's something cool in these verses because the Greek word in verse 1 is Philadelphos, which probably sounds like the home of the eagles and the Phillies, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. It literally means love the brothers and sisters. It's an inward command at how God shapes us to relate to one another. Um, when I think of brotherly love, I think of familial, warm, make fun of you while trash talking, playing cards on family vacation type of love, but also there for you on your worst days kinds of love. But then in verse two, the Greek word for show hospitality to strangers is philozenia, love of the other, the stranger, the alien, the foreigner. So we have love of your brother and then love of the other. And it's not an accident that these are back to back. He's intentionally calling the church to cultivate a love that moves in two directions at the same time, inward and outward. Love for those who were in and love for those who were not yet in. This is what it looks like to be a people of presence who are being transformed by God, beholding his glory. And hospitality is not just about opening up your life or home for others. It's also just about the kind of person you are. Hospitality is a theology of recognition. It's being a person whose orientation is different than everyone else passing by. A person who notices others, who sees beneath the surface, who cares and takes a genuine interest in others' lives. I don't know if you guys remember the year 2020. It was a, a bit of a hard year. Uh, we were in the upstate at a celebration service for Christie's grandmother who had recently passed away in March when all of a sudden my, my phone started blowing up and it was like, oh, this pandemic thing that we've been hearing about really is happening. Uh, the, the entire world is shutting down. And there was this mad scramble due to availability and long story short, I ended up writing a sermon that night to record and send out to all three of our churches called Church in the Plague. And, and then what we thought would be a few weeks turned into longer than that. It was a really hard season for all of us, most obviously so for those who lost their lives or their loved ones. And on top of those tragedies, it, it exacerbated so many mental health struggles, contributed to an isolated society already. It further eroded social trust in a time where there wasn't a whole lot to begin with, if we're honest. And it just in general did a number on so many people. It feels like yesterday and forever ago but we are still climbing out of the effects physically, relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I would argue that there is a golden opportunity for us as God's people to rediscover and recommit to biblical hospitality, to let God's presence show up in our love for one another and turn outward to those in our spheres of influence who need it the most. And this doesn't have to be complicated or fancy. It's more about a, a posture than an event. It starts with a little bit of margin and a lot of intentionality. It starts with, instead of walking past your neighbor, looking at your phone, stopping for a minute, a moment and asking, hey, I don't think we've met yet. What's your name? Maybe you'll be the first person who's done that in years for them. It starts with something as small as your posture at work and the down moments on the soccer field. Are you always on your phone and give off a vibe that the other humans around you are annoyances to you? 
Are you genuinely looking to notice others and engage them with warmth and interest in their lives? We can be just like everyone else around us. Heads down, eyes glued to our screens, frustrated, busy, frazzled. Or we can be different. We can be people who open up our lives and yes, even our homes to love those who may be outside of God's family. Having times where we intentionally host people in our homes for meals, a game night, uh, to watch a game, anything intentional like that is is a mission opportunity that is set on a tee for us in a post-COVID isolated world. It's such an opportunity if we will take advantage of it. And just like Hebrews 13 mentions a story about Abraham where he was just cooking a meal, but he was actually entertaining angels. The point is that God works in supernatural ways through our hospitality. Like you think you're just engaging someone in conversation, asking questions about their lives, stopping to recognize them, cooking a meal, kicking the toys out of the way so people can come in your house. But God moves through these ordinary acts. He gets people's attention. He speaks and works in ways that we don't see. There's a German philosopher who talks about this, who says, if you ask people to tell you the most important turning points in their lives, those points are almost always unexpected encounters. Then I met this person. I read this book. I ended up joining this group. Someone brought me to this place and it changed my life. And that is some of your stories here. You met a person. You got involved in a life group. You got randomly brought to a gathering here. And it changed your life. And our prayer is that that continues to happen more and more. And if we truly live like this, if we go out of our way to notice people, to see them as God has seen us, if we ask questions and take a level of interest that no one else around us seems to take, if we embrace an analog faith in our digital world and structure our lives and our relationship with technology differently, people might think we're weird. They might think we're different. But if we're weird and different for those reasons, then I'm all for it, amen? All for it. That's the good kind of weird. That's the holy kind of weird. That's the kind of distinctly different people that our modern world desperately needs to see. And as we've been saying this entire series, what we need for our flourishing and our health is to become people of the pages. People who simply open up the word and do what it says. I have no interest in leading a church with a lesser goal than that. And it's what our families and friends and community need as well. They need to see a people who stand out, who have different habits and orientations, who seem set apart for a certain purpose, which is what the word holy has always meant anyway. They need to see a people of the pages, a people of presence, And may we be just that for them. Please pray with me.